you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. Winter night, and I'll never forget getting the call. A friend of mine called me to pick him up, found himself in a circumstance he wasn't proud of. And the whole car ride, it's pretty silent. And we get back to my place, and when we're back in my place, um, Ben was sleeping inside, and so was my wife. It was kind of late. And we're out there in the middle of the night, and it was, it was uncomfortably cold. Um, to the point where you're kind of both looking at each other like, are you going to say we can go inside now or what, you know? But we're just sitting out there and it remains quiet for some time. And then finally, I asked the question, so what happened? And slowly but surely, beginning very vaguely, but as time progressed, getting into the more specifics of the events that have kind of unfolded in his life, the decisions that he had made that led him to where he was. And after some time, the conversation shifted from the things that he did to be more conversations about himself and the fact that he was really disappointed with the decisions that he made. He was uh, upset and frustrated. And if I could be candid, the things coming up out of his mouth were, had to do with a lot of self-hatred. And after his monologue and spiel, he kind of quiets down and almost a visible look comes over his face as he ponders the question, how did I get here? How did I find myself here in the middle of a winter night, freezing outside after I had blown up my life? If you had attested his theological knowledge, he would certainly exceed any expectations you had for him. If you were to check his bank account, he was remarkably generous. If you were to go through his iTunes, you would find the songs with double glory, right? Hillsong, Bethel, and the like. If you were to ask his family and his church friends, they'd say nothing but good things about him. But if you were to look into his heart, you would see his heart had grown cold towards Jesus. And as we peeled back the layers of his life in conversation, it was clear he had believed lies. Lies about his life, lies about God, lies about what would make him happy, what would give his life meaning and purpose. He had realized for far too long he had just been going through the motions. Jesus was no longer at the center of his life, but somewhere in the background. You see, at any given moment, you could have asked him about doctrine the exposition of the scriptures, the mission of the church, the reconciling work of the cross, and he could provide theological answers. But if he was honest, he believed all the right things, but he wasn't really following Jesus anymore. He believed in Jesus in his mind, but he denied Jesus with his life. 
When we hear a story like this, it can be easy for us to pass judgment. It can be easy for us to begin to think, that will never be me. If you would have grabbed him two years before that moment and been talking with, that, that he would be there talking with me on a cold winter night, trying to pick up the pieces of his life, he would have never believed you. We would all like to think that the journey of faith is simple, free of twists and turns, and paved with security and comfort. But if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you know that's not the case. The journey of faith is complex, hard, and challenging, filled with moments of uncertainty. This moment brought me to think of the hymn, Come Thou Found, where the hymnist says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The invitation of Jesus is not to a faith filled with certainty, but to an unexpected journey where you behold the beauty of who he is in the middle of mystery. Today, I want to invite you to behold the beauty of Jesus through the journey of faith told through the life of Peter. My goal today is that you would see even in the darkest moments of our journey of faith, Jesus still calls us to himself. And today, if I may, I want to look at three scenes from the life of Peter. Will you join me on the journey? So, we begin here in verse 31 in Luke 22. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all his wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. We are in the final moments leading up to the cross, leading up to this moment in Jesus' life. Judas had already agreed to betray Jesus, and Jesus is at this last meal with his disciples. And then an argument breaks out amongst his disciples about which one of them would be considered the greatest, which if there's an inopportune time, it's that, right? Jesus is trying to have this final meal to impart his love and his teaching onto his disciples. And they're like, thank you, Jesus. But the real question is, which one of us is the best, right? And that's the argument that they're having. And so there's this back and forth happening amongst the disciples about who's the greatest. The scriptures don't give us insight to that conversation, but it probably did not sound good. Well, I was, Jesus, I was with Jesus the most when he did miracles, whatever it is, right? And there's this back and forth, and poor Bartholomew's like kind of on the outskirts, not really entering into our conversation because nobody knows much about Bartholomew. But Jesus then begins to remind them of the way of the kingdom. That according to Jesus, the way to pursue greatness is not the way the world defines greatness, but it's instead with the posture of the kingdom. And the posture of the kingdom is about service. That if you want to be the greatest, you serve the most. And then Jesus pauses in the middle of this exhortation and teaching and issues this chilling warning to Peter. 
Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat. In this brief moment, Jesus gives us a behind-the-scenes view of what's actually happening. You see, that while this, this conversation seems to be an inconsequential argument with the disciples, there is something much more sinister happening beneath the surface. Jesus tells his disciples that the adversary wants to destroy their faith. Here it says that Satan has asked. This isn't the best translation for the word. A better translation would be demanded. So it's not like he's asking for permission necessarily. He's basically making his demands. And Satan is making his demands to God. I want to destroy their faith. The next idea is this idea of sift you as wheat. I don't know if we have any wheat farmers in the room. I'm not sure that we do. But is this idea when you sift the wheat is this process by which where the wheat farmer would do a couple of things. One, a really old way of doing it is laying wheat out on the ground and they would smash it with a club of some sort to kind of separate the grain from the chaff. Another way to do that is this shaking of the wheat so that the grain would separate from the chaff and that the chaff would leave. But it's this process of breaking and of shaking. And it is this that the enemy asks, or demands rather, from the Lord, that he would be able to shake and break the faith of the disciples. In our conversation around doubt, deconstruction, and the journey of faith, we can make the conversation purely personal, relational, or theological. And hear me in this, all of those really matter. But a huge aspect that gets neglected is the spiritual aspect where attacks come on the people of God's faith. Satan, the adversary, is actively demanding to destroy the faith of the disciples. And brothers and sisters, hear me in this. We must be incredibly aware of the reality of demonic attacks on the faith of the people of God. Far too often, we dismiss this idea or downplay its impact. We like to think as modern people, right, that this is no longer the framework that we have, but this is the framework the biblical authors and Jesus had about the world. That we assume that reality is only that that which we can see, but Jesus lets us into a whole new reality that's just beyond our eyes. Brothers and sisters, you have an enemy. Now, he's not like the cartoons have depicted him with a pitchfork and red horns lurking around the corner to cause mischief. He's a seeker of death. Jesus says of him in John 10, the thief being the serpent, being the Satan, being the adversary, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. As followers of Jesus, we are not to kind of placate the enemy or kind of just keep him at bay. His desire is for your death, for your destruction. That's his whole life's motto. John Mark Comer says this, For Jesus, the devil is an archetype of a villain who is hell-bent on destruction. He just wants to watch the world burn. His motto Tear it all down. Wherever he finds life, he tries to stamp it out. Beauty, deface it. Love, corrupt it. Unity, 
fragment it into a million pieces. Human flourishing, push it to anarchy or tyranny. Either will do. His anti-life, pro-death, pro-chaos agenda is an insatiable fire. As believers, we often forget this reality. We think it's just not about uh, having, holding to the right theological truths or um, not attending church as frequently as like, but there is a deeply spiritual reality to the journey of faith. And according to the biblical authors in Jesus, there's a reality that extends far beyond what our eyes can see, but has very real influence on the lives we lead today. And so how does the devil launch his attacks of faith? Well, the war is not fought with sword and with shield. It's not fought on land or sea. The war is fought on the soil of our minds and with ideas as weapons. And so every journey away from Jesus begins first with believing lies. Every journey away from Jesus first begins with believing lies. Think of Adam and Eve. How did the serpent come to her? He came to her with an idea. Did God really say? And he twisted the scriptures and he lies and he said, surely you won't die. The enemy comes to her with an idea. And in every single story, you can trace things back to the lies they believed. So as we have this conversation about the journey of faith, we can acknowledge that every story of doubt and deconstruction or even denial begins with believing a lie. Think about my friend from earlier. He believed in the lie of things that would make him happy. Now, every story is different, but we can all trace back to similar lies. For some of you, it's the lie that God is not good. For others of you, it's the lie that God is holding out on you. For some of you, it's the lie, did God really say? And for others, it's the lie, surely you won't die. Here in the story of Peter, we see that Satan has a target on his and the disciples' back. His goal, his intention, his purpose to destroy their faith. Now notice what Jesus says next. He says this, But I have prayed for you, Simon. Jesus tells Peter that he is praying for him. Now, even though there's this bone-chilling reality given by the enemy, I mean, think about that. What if today in pre-gathering prayer, the prophetic word was given, was the, hey, Satan's asking for you by name, right? That, and we receive that, Father. And, no, you would be terrified, right? That bone-chilling response. But in that same moment, Jesus responds and lets him know, though there's that bone-chilling reality that the enemy is asking for them by name, there's a more comforting reality provided by Jesus that he's praying for them. And not only did Jesus pray for Peter, but brothers and sisters, hear me in this, Jesus is praying for you. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? And is also 
interceding for us. That right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father praying for you because of this reality of spiritual warfare. Think about it. The way that Jesus waged war on the attacks on his disciples was through prayer. What would happen if the church took this same approach from Jesus? That we would be committed to the work of intercession for the faith of people in our church and for our city. And in the coming months, we're going to be making some intentional shifts here at Zion to be more devoted to the practice of prayer and specifically the prayer of intercession. That the call for Jesus, the call from Jesus to his disciples is to stand in the gap for his people in prayer. And he models this with his life. And notice what he tells Peter next. That your faith may not fail. The word fail here is the word eclipo. Can you say eclipo? Three of you can say it. Can you say eclipo? Look at you guys speaking Greek. It means to cease, give out, come to an end. Eclipo is where we get the English word eclipse. It means where something causes something to fail, to to come out of sight, to, to lose sight of it. When we see a solar eclipse, it's where the moon goes in front of the sun. And for a brief moment, it looks like the moon is larger than the sun. And this word picture uh, describes perfectly what happens here. It's also used elsewhere in the scriptures uh, when it has that kind of apocalyptic imagery of the sun being darkened. Same word, eclipo. It's this idea of something getting in the way of the sun. Now notice... This is a perfect word to describe the journey that Peter is going to go down. That for a brief moment, something would get in the way of the sun. And from his perspective, from his vantage point, and from his life, the darkness would seem to be more than the light. But it is only his perspective. If he were to come outside of that, he would see that it is surely not the case. It's just for a moment. And so... Jesus prays that ultimately the disciples' faith would not eclipse, would not fail, that something wouldn't get in the way. Now, notice what Jesus says immediately after. He says, and when you have turned back, not if, when you come back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus speaks in faith that after the moment that they would turn their backs on Jesus, they would turn back towards him. Jesus full well understood his disciples would abandon him. Jesus knows that Peter will leave him and chooses in this moment to still remind him of his calling to strengthen the disciples when he returns. He goes on to say, Peter replies, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answers, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Peter's getting a lot of bad news pretty quick, right? First, Satan's gunning for him, and next, he's going to deny Jesus. In that moment in time, nothing sounds more ludicrous to Peter 
He's got adrenaline pumping through his veins, right? He lopped the dude's ear off in Jesus' name. You know, he was ready to go down with a fight for Jesus, or so he thought. What he could not foresee was the unfolding moments that would soon follow. But in that moment, nothing sounds so strange to him. And so there may be some of you sitting in the seats today that's like, this sermon's for so-and-so. It's not for me. Like, I'm good. I'm in a good place. I love the Lord. Never doubted. Never fretted. Never thought anything else. Boom. Rock solid. Try again, Satan. Right? That might be somehow you are thinking. Did you not think Peter thought the same thing? Had that same framework of thinking? We can be so easily influenced towards spiritual pride that we think we are better than we ought more able to resist than we actually are and then seasons of testing come that reveal the foundation that we're actually on the people who have the strongest faith are those who are the most humble to admit their weakness and where they are prone to wonder peter does not see this and so peter was so certain of his faith that he almost in a sense rebukes jesus Jesus is like, you're going to deny me. He's like, uh-uh, uh-uh, I ain't going to deny you. I'm going to die doing this, right? If I had to get locked up, Jesus, right, this is what we're doing. You're wrong, Lord. And Jesus tells him, Peter, before today's even over, before the sun rises tomorrow, you'll deny that you even know me. Not once, not twice, but three times. I want to look at the second scene in the life of Peter, scrolling down in Luke 22, starting in verse 54. It says this, Then seizing him, being Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And notice this, Peter followed at a distance. Notice that Peter's denial begins by him creating distance. Peter begins to separate himself from Jesus. At one moment, they're side by side. But as time progresses, Peter gets further and further and further away. He's close enough to see what happens, but he's not close enough to participate. We see this same thing happen in the lives of followers of Jesus. First, it looks like keeping everything on the surface. Someone asks any sort of penetrating real question and everything is deflected or dodged. Then it looks like outright just not being a part of the community at all anymore. And I'm not talking about church attendance, I'm talking about belonging to a people. Then it looks like not praying or spending any time with Jesus. Then it looks like not texting back or returning phone calls for people who care about them. And walking away from Jesus first looks like getting space from him. Why? Because creating space makes it easy to dehumanize and makes it easier to deny. Haven't you noticed it's really easy to argue with somebody who's not there? Right? I know I'm not the only one who's had the arguments with an invisible person in the shower. You're laughing because it's true. Well, you say this, well, this, this, and this, and this, and you're wrong about this. And you remember last Thursday you did, you know, you're in the shower with shampoo in your hair, going tooth and nail with the lady at work. 
right? If I walk through that door, so help me, Linda, right? It's going down. You're ready. You got all her arguments mapped out, lined out, ready to go. So you say this, I say this, you do this. We do that in our mind. You can even get all fired up in the car. You're listening to some heavy metal. You're ready to go. And you walk in the door and she says, oh, good morning, I got you a Starbucks. Yeah, yeah, good morning to you too, Linda, right? And you go and you get your Starbucks. You see, the moment that you were there in presence, it was a lot harder to demonize or dehumanize. What we're seeing in the realm of social media is pretty insane. Uh, Dave Chappelle, a comedian, is under fire recently for a lot of things. I'm not going to speak on any of the things that he said. But when asked, when, when he was kind of bringing it up about the reality that he has been quote-unquote canceled, he said, I've been canceled on Twitter and I don't care because Twitter's not a real place. And it's true. We so easily make judgments, make assumptions, form opinions, declare realities so easily about other people and it's so much easier because they're not there called keyboard courage. That when you're behind there, oh, you're courageous. Let me tell you this, let me tell you that, let me tell you this, but face to face, you would say something much more different. And it's not because you're a coward, but because you realize they're human with thoughts, feelings, a family, emotions, opinions that could be wrong. But when you create that distance, it's easy to do that. We see this happen all the time when people get wounded in the church. It's easy to kind of make these stories and build these things and these, person, these people in the church become really grandiose, but they never have a single conversation with the person who wounded them. And so it becomes this big, huge thing, but they actually meet together and realize the person just apologizes, repents, cries, asks for forgiveness. And all that they had built in their mind kind of crumbles. They aren't who we thought they were. It's easier to deny Jesus when you have a distance from him when you haven't spent time with him, when you're not beholding his heart. And you can build up these things in your minds about him that makes it easier to justify your denial. C.S. Lewis says this, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And that's kind of the journey away from Jesus. It's not this sudden abandonment, but it's this slow drift. It's this path that leads elsewhere. Watch what happens next. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, he sat down together, and Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight, she looked closely at him and said, this man was with them. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you're also one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crows. Peter denies Jesus. And then the rooster 
cross. What began as distance becomes outright denial. And it seems to escalate rather quickly. We can trace all of this back to a lie that Peter was believing in the moment. Now, the scriptures don't give us a lot of insight into his framework of thinking at this time. But if we could all be human and honest, you'd be afraid too. The man that you had followed, you gave your life to, is currently being investigated by the religious leaders who have political authority to have this man killed. And you worry too that it may cost you your life. You see, Peter thought he was ready to die with Jesus, but in all actuality, Peter wasn't ready to live for him. And this needed to be exposed in his heart. And so I love the conversation. There's a young girl there who's like, that guy looks pretty familiar, right? Think it's with Jesus. Hey, aren't you with Jesus? I don't know what you're talking about, woman, right? And a little bit later, no, I'm pretty sure. Like, you're in the group photo, man. I think I've seen you there. I don't think this is a doppelganger situation. I think you're the one. I don't know what you're talking about. And everyone's like, all right, whatever you say. And an hour goes by, and somebody's there sitting like, he's lying. Like, dude, you're the guy. I'm certain of it. You're one of his, you know, he's one of his homies. And I swear, I, am not, I do not know this man. And then suddenly, the rooster crows. Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him, that before the rooster crows today, you will disown me. Three times, Peter went outside the gate and wept bitterly. It is in this very moment that Peter realizes what he's done. It isn't this kind of crazy that Jesus is on trial. He's in the midst of a trial with these religious leaders where his life hangs in the balance. And he stops to connect with Peter. Now, it's easy to read this and think it's like the parent, I told you so. You know, when you tell your kid not to do something and then they do it and they get hurt and you give them the look like, right? Told you so. It's easy to think that that's Jesus' look here. Like, Peter, 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 always screwing up, you know? I don't think that's the case. I think in this moment, the rooster crowing was actually a gift of grace. Because it's in this moment of testing where Peter's faith becomes real. You'd see it's easier to follow Jesus when all the power and momentum and favor is on your side. But what happens when all that goes? Would he still remain? And so I believe this look was the look, not that of a you know, disgruntled parent, but that of a loving father, that of a caring shepherd who knows what Peter's about to go through and how it'll utterly break his heart. And it says that he went out and wept bitterly. I can only imagine Peter sitting outside the gate asking a simple question. How did I get here? I thought I would live with him. I thought I'd go to prison with him. I thought I would die for him. But there I was, denying him. Who have I become? And the third scene in Peter's life I want to point us to is that in John 20. It says this, When they finished eating, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and what were you wanted and when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. What we stumble upon in this scene is that Peter went back to his old life. You see, Jesus had revealed himself to the disciples and they would just vanish. Like, hey guys, peace be with you. Let's have dinner. All right, I'm out. Gone, right? And instead of Peter rising to the occasion of what God had called him to, to strengthen his brothers, as Peter, as Jesus previously said before, like upon the leadership there, that he, upon this rock I'll build my church, speaking about Peter and the leadership and all the stuff that will happen and flow out of that movement and out of those disciples, Peter turns in his keys and his badge. I'm glad you're risen, but I'm done. And he goes back to the thing that he knew, which was fishing. And being the leader that he is, everyone's like, Peter, where are you going? I'm going fishing. All right, welcome to, right? They're just kind of unsure of what to do. And so they're out there all night and in typical fashion, no luck. And suddenly a man appears on the shore and says, you guys having any luck out there? What's biting, right? Power bait, what you using, corn? Whatever. <laughs> and they're like, no luck. Thanks for asking. We've been out here all night. And he says, try the other side. Try the other side, good one. You know, okay, we didn't try that yet. And they toss it over. And suddenly the net is so filled with fish, they can't even bring it on board. And Peter realizes it's the Lord. So it said that he had, a, he took off his cloak because it's hot and he's fishing, throws it on, jumps into the water and swims towards Jesus, which is irrational. He could have just rowed the boat, but he's like, we're doing this dramatic style, right? We're going in. And he sees Jesus, and then the other disciples are upset because they have to pull the fish onto the boat. Peter just dipped out at the hardest part, you know. And Jesus says, bring some of the fish you bought. And Jesus has started a fire. And then Jesus just has breakfast with them. And then after that moment, Jesus says, Peter, you got a minute. Let's go for a walk. And as they're walking, Peter just asks him, Jesus just asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, feeling guilty and shame about what he had done, but he sincerely does love the Lord, responds, yes, I love you. And then Jesus recommissions him, then feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I, I, I love you, you know. A little confused why he asked a second time, but yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Then a third time, Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And it's at this moment that Peter realizes what Jesus is doing. Jesus is undoing Peter's denial. 
with three affirmations of Peter's love for Jesus. I don't know about you guys. I've experienced some betrayal in my life. And Jesus responds absolutely the opposite way of what I would do, right? We think that in the scenario where we were betrayed and somebody wanted our forgiveness, well, 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 look who came back, right? What was that again? You don't know me, hmm, right? It's like, you're going to have to do a lot of things to make this up, bud, a lot of things, you know. You said you had my back, you said you would die for me, and you denied me, right? We would think all these things that we would say or do. And Jesus does none of those. Instead, he speaks to the very area of shame that Peter had. You see, had not Jesus done this, Peter would always bear the scars of the one who denied Jesus. So Jesus steps into that place of pain and undoes the sin and the shame that Peter has incurred on himself through his denial. And in doing so, reminds him of who he's called him to be. At that moment, Peter was walking in his old identity. And that's what going down that path ultimately leads you. When you've created some space from, dis- space from Jesus, when you begin to deny who he is, you go back to the very old things you used to do. Back to the old friends, back to the old space, back to the old place, hoping that somewhere you could find again some normalcy. And Jesus calls Peter out of that and says, that's not who you are anymore. I've called you to be a shepherd, someone who takes care of my sheep. Essentially, Jesus is saying, Peter, no more fishing. It's time to be a shepherd. Peter, no more fishing. It's time to be a leader. Peter, that's who you used to be. I want you to become who you are, the leader of my church. And isn't it crazy to think that Jesus entrusted the kingdom into his hands as the leader of the disciples? Isn't that kind of strange? Like if we were to look at a resume of people who we would entrust the kingdom to, Peter's last on the list, if not, you know, second to last, you know. He's... Uh, irrational at times to say the least, right? He's outspoken, which is good, but speaks too much and gets himself in a lot of trouble, i.e. puts his foot in his mouth a lot, right? And oh yeah, not to mention he just denied the leader of the movement three times a few days ago, right? And so it's this guy we are entrusting the keys of the kingdom to. It's this guy who's going to head these things on. And absolutely it is because God is in the business of using broken and bent tools to build his kingdom. And you know what that means? He uses people like me. He uses people like you. And he restores Peter. And he recommissions him to his calling. And I love at the very end, it's this reminder, Peter, follow me. Follow me. I wanted to look at these three scenes in the life of Peter. And as I was preparing for this message, I just had this overwhelming feeling of that some people feel here like their story has disqualified them from being used by God. And certain sin and shame is keeping them 
from being transparent with Jesus, committed to the work that he's doing, vulnerable and honest. And that a lot of this sin creates a chasm between you and God. You struggle to pray because you think he's mad at you for the way that you've been living. You don't like really, I mean, you're here, but you don't enjoy coming here because you're worried that everyone's going to find out that you're a fraud. You daily carry with you the weight of sin and shame, and you wonder, could God ever use someone like me? And I believe the invitation from Jesus is yes. We'd all like to think that faith is simple, clear and clear, black and white, easy to navigate. But if we're more honest, most of our journeys look a lot like Peter's. You know, it's easy to say, well, if someone really pressed me, I would never deny Jesus. But you've come in this morning by the way you live your life denying him. That you might believe the right things. You might have the correct doctrine. You might even be able to stand firm theologically, but your heart has grown cold. And the invitation this morning is to behold Jesus. Look at his heart. That even from the one who turned his back on him, Jesus welcomes him with open arms and reassigns him to the place of leadership. That's the gracious God we serve. And so I believe by way of the Spirit, the Spirit's inviting some of you to come back. Maybe it doesn't look like for you outright denial. and Maybe it's not necessarily doubt. And maybe it's not necessarily deconstruction, but for you it's been drift. You've been getting slowly pulled by the tides of life. Slowly pulled by your work. Slowly pulled by hanging out with friends. Slowly pulled out by having a good time, whatever it looks like. And Jesus, who was once at the center, now plays some background noise. And you're worried what he might say if you met with him again, would he be disappointed? Would he be angry? Would I be disqualified? And the testimony of the life of Peter and his journey of faith is that you belong here and that God is calling you to become who you already are. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you're free. You're free of sin, you're free of shame, you're free of guilt, you're free of the sting of death, and God has placed his spirit inside you. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he tells us that when we not live according to the way of Jesus, when we invite bitterness and rage and anger and drunkenness and all those things into our life, he says we grieve the spirit of God. And I just have this sense this morning that the Spirit is letting some of you know that he's been grieved. But this grief is not condemnation. It's an invitation to return, to come back. And that what Jesus is wanting to do this morning is to undo the curse of sin you've brought in your life by reaffirming his love for you. He's saying this morning, I love you, I love you, I love you. 
I'm calling you. I'm equipping you. I'm sending you out. Right now, we want to enter into a time of response. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up here. And Ashley is going to lead us in this time of response. But as we prepare for this moment, I come back to the hymn, Come Thou Found. The hymn says, Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Though we are deeply acquainted with the weakness in us that causes us to wonder, the invitation of the Spirit this morning is for us to return to Jesus with our hearts and say, here, Lord, is my heart. Take it and seal it. Holy Spirit, we invite you into the room to do what only you can do. We thank you for your word. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.